come up here. Join me, if you will, in your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah will be the book that we will be in for the foreseeable future till after Christmas. Isaiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be one in the seat underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, you can find one and, and use that. We continue our series in Isaiah. Last week, last week it was very clear that the Lord saves. This week, we're going to find out what the Lord saves us from. So, let's go ahead and read our passage. We're going to start back in verse 1 of chapter 1. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach just on one verse again. Maybe. No promises. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O oh, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Verse 5, Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head. No spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the text this morning, we see a powerful statement, a powerful statement about the evil and wickedness of sin, the sinfulness of sin. Father, but we also see hope in this passage. We see a cure for the disease of sin. Lord, as I have been studying this, my heart has been stirred to, to understand it more deeply. And I pray that the fruit of my labors would be a, a wonderful, pleasing sacrifice to you. We thank you for the time of communion that we were able to have this morning that reminded us of the broken body of Christ. We thank you for this church family and being able to gather together where so many are not able. We thank you for the ministry of Operation Christmas Child that spreads to the whole world from this little tiny area of the United States, this little area in southeast Arizona. So, Father God, we pray for your word to speak to our hearts, that we would be transformed by your word, that we would have a deeper faith in Jesus Christ, and we would cling to him as our sole hope. Be with us and guide us, Father God, as we approach 
this time of preaching. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. So as you read this passage, you can almost feel the weight of it, can't you? It's a pretty heavy passage. And as we approach it, we see that Isaiah is pointing to a future. He's pointing to a future about what's going to happen to Judah. Something is going to happen to Judah, and it's going to be terrible. But not only that, not only is it going to be terrible, you could just look across the border. So this is the southern part of Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem is there. And they could look across to the north from the south. They could look to the northern kingdom and see the destruction that happens when you abandon the Lord, when you rebel against God. And they, they could see that same thing happening now here. And many people have speculated that Isaiah is talking about a spiritual destruction and desolation right now. And he's saying that spiritually you're dead, and eventually physically that's going to happen. And I think that's a pretty accurate assessment of what Isaiah is saying here. And what he says is, God has called a court. He has given a court summons to the people of Judah. He has uh, subpoenaed, uh, subpoenaed them. He has knocked on their door and said, you are to report to the court of the Lord. Come before me. And we have a court summons. And they have a charge. And they know what they're being charged with. They're being charged with a crime against God. And that crime is sin. That charge is sin. God's people, His chosen nation, chose to rebel. They chose to follow other gods and to chase their own desires. The sins of the people of Israel are charged with are equally suited to us. Because the same crimes that they've committed are the same crimes that we have committed. We have rebelled against the Lord in our own actions. We have chosen to find satisfaction in things that are not God. So, let's talk about sin for a minute. We delight in sin instead of rejecting it. And so, we have to see sin for what it is. It's foolishness, it's a burden, and it's a disease. These are the three things and the three areas that we're going to study today in this passage. So there are many good definitions. One catechism says that sin is a lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And that's just a fancy way of saying breaking God's law, not adhering to the law. So when you go faster than the speed limit, you are breaking the law. When you steal from your employer, you are breaking the law. And this is a standard that has been set in place. And God has a moral standard that they are failing to measure up to is another definition. One definition I heard that's a little bit unique is from John Piper. He said, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Think about that for a minute. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. I think that's a pretty helpful definition. And that's what we're going to see here is that the people of Israel were not satisfied with God. They decided to be foolish. And sin is foolishness. Verse 2 says this. Listen, heavens. Pay attention, earth. For the Lord has spoken. Sin is foolishness because it is counter to nature. God has called in His witnesses. The heavens and the earth. They have been brought forth in this courthouse. So imagine a court. And God's people, Judah, is brought into the courthouse and he has his witnesses. He has the jury. The jury is the heavens and the earth. They've been personified. Why would God use nature 
as an example or a witness against the people of Judah. Because even nature obeys God. Even nature completely follows the Lord. There's no rebellion there from nature. In fact, God uses this language in several different places. In Deuteronomy uh, 4.26, there's a uh, covenant that happens. In our psalm this morning, in Psalm 50, God calls the heavens and the earth to be help Him as He judges the people. Deuteronomy 30, 19-20 says it this way, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Verse 20, love the Lord your God, obey Him, and remain faithful to Him. For He is your life, and He will prolong your days as you live in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What that's saying is that we need to find our satisfaction in the Lord. Over and over again, wisdom tells us there are two paths. The path of the fool and the path of the wise. The path of death and the path of life. Those who choose something other than God choose death. And we see this over and over again. And so nature obeys the Lord's command and is obedient to the Lord because He made it and it operates in the way that it was made to function. But tightly woven in with nature is wisdom. So sin is foolishness because it is counter to wisdom. It is the antithesis of wisdom. Sin is foolishness. If you look at the book of Proverbs, you can see how often it says to look at the nature in order to understand wisdom. It says, look at the ant, you sluggard. Look at the birds. Look at the mountains. Look at this. Look at that. See that. See this. And over and over again, you're told to look at nature in order to gain wisdom that is ultimately from the Lord. He points to two animals here in verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about his children. He says, I have raised children in verse 2 and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. He's talking about the people of Judah. He said, these people are my own kids and they rebelled against me. They have chosen something other than me as their father. And he says, look at these ox. If you were in the congregation of Isaiah and he said, Look at this ox and look at this donkey. You would all have many stories of the time when your ox decided to do something dumb. It was a bullheaded ox or the donkey that refused to obey. The stubborn mule wanted to do its own thing. And you have these stories. And so when he says, you are not like an ox or a donkey, you're dumber than an ox and a donkey. That would be pretty insulting right off the bat. Sin is foolishness because it is counter to wisdom. Those animals are known for their stubborn ignorance. But even those animals know the source of their food. They know where to go for hope and help when there's a storm. Even the ox knows its owner. Even the donkey, its master's feeding trough. With the Hebrews, they always like to combine obedience with wisdom. Obedience to the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Over and over again, wisdom is found through obedience to God. 
And so if you look at the book of Proverbs, you'll find plenty of evidence to this reality. Rebelling brings death. Obedience brings life. So sin is always foolishness. It's choosing a temporary pleasure over an eternal good. Have you ever examined the sin in your life this way? Have you ever considered the sin in your life as a temporary pleasure or an immediate high or immediate happiness versus the eternal consequences? Have you thought about it that way? And let's be honest. How often do we choose sin because it's pleasurable? How often do we choose to sin because it's easy? Because we want instant gratification, don't we? We want immediate relief. We don't want to wait. We don't want to endure. We don't want to suffer. We want immediate relief. But what if I told you that that immediate relief may hinder your growth in the Lord? Would you choose immediate relief and hinder your growth in the Lord? How many of us would say, absolutely, I'd rather not be in pain. Holiness can be, I can get holiness if I'm feeling good. But sin is a burden. So not only is it foolishness because we choose something counter to satisfaction, it's a burden. Sin is a burden because it makes your conscience heavy. Look at verse 4. Oh, sinful nation. This is almost like Isaiah is making a commentary on the, what God has said. So God said, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children up, brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. And then Isaiah takes up the refrain, and he says, oh, or ah, or ugh, would be a better way to say that. And he says, sinful nation. This is not him condemning them. He's not beating them up with a stick. Ha, you guys are a bunch of sinners, and he's whipping them and beating them. No, he's saying, oh my goodness. People weighed down with iniquity. Your sin is heavy. It is crushing you. It is wearing you out. It's a burden. It weighs on the conscience. David cries out about his guilty conscience in Isaiah or in Psalm 51. He says, he, he just cries out because of the sin that he has committed. He said, it's always before me. It's ever in front of me. You ever sinned and felt that way before? Where that, that sin that you did is always before you, is constantly on your mind. Maybe it's a conflict that you had with someone, and you said some mean things, and they said some mean things. And it's always in your mind, just pl- replaying over and over. It's like a high definition in your brain, and you just have it piped in constantly. You can't turn it off. It's weighing you down. It's like a heavy backpack. In school, did you have to carry all your books around? All those science books and math books and every other book and all your binders, and you had to go from place to place in a heavy bag, carrying it, weighing you down. Those of us in the military all had ruck marches. And at some point in our life, we had to carry a rucksack for an extended period of time. I've already told you my story about carrying the 50 cal. and happened because I'm the shortest guy, and they always want to give the shortest guy the biggest stuff. I don't understand but they just want to make us tough, I guess. So you get this rucksack and it's weighing you down and you walk for 12 miles or you walk for 20 miles or you walk for 24 miles, however long your ruck march is. And as you're walking, it just weighs you down, doesn't it? Over time, even a 35 or 40 pound or even an 80 pound rucksack 
over time feels like 100 pounds, and then 110 pounds, and it just gets heavier and heavier, and it's rubbing on your shoulders, and it's causing some chafing, and you're sweating, and you just can't get free from this burden, because you can't look weak if you quit, right? And so you have this heavy rucksack on your back, and you're constantly adjusting the straps. You're trying to get out from underneath this weight. And so how do you get underneath, get out from underneath it? How do you get this thing off? There's no easy way out of this, the shame and the guilt that you feel when you sin. In fact, the closer you get to God, the heavier the burden becomes. Why do you think atheists who say there is no God get angry when you bring up God? It's because their consciences are heavy. And the more you bring up God, the heavier it weighs on them. So they're going to lash out at you. They're going to try to push that rucksack off to the sides and carry it wider or bring it in narrow or get some relief some way. Or they start to blame other people. If my parents hadn't been so mean to me, I wouldn't have this burden. Oh, if this person hadn't called me that name that you know 10 years ago, if I hadn't been so poorly treated by the government, somebody else's fault. Or it's me. I'm going to beat myself up about it. Oh, it's me. Woe is me. I got this heavy burden. I'm just going to I have to carry it the rest of my life. It's a big heavy rucksack. Oh man, everybody let me tell everybody about how miserable my life is. Oh, man, I'm the victim. And it's true. The sin that's been committed against us and our own personal sin does cause a heavy bag. But not only that, but it's contagious. The corruption of sin doesn't only corrupt us, but it begins to corrupt others. You bring other people down with you. It's like the sinking of the Titanic. Everybody's going down. We begin to spread our sin to others. It hardens others to sin. Our approval of sin in us and our justification of our own sin begins to allow it to, to harden other people's hearts. Oh, that's not such a big deal. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry so much about that. That's not such a bad thing. And you rebel against the Lord. And that's what we see here in Judah, and that's what we see in our own personal lives, don't we? We see the people of Judah said, oh, it's okay if you worship multiple gods. Not a big deal as long as you go to the temple and you do your worship there as well. God doesn't mind if you worship multiple gods. It's okay. You know, many men and women do not forsake the Lord formally. They don't usually come into church one Sunday morning and make a big announcement to the church body and say, I have decided that I will no longer follow Jesus. And then they walk out. That's really rarely how it goes. How does it usually happen? Well, something else is more important than church this Sunday. And I'm kind of tired, so I'm going to not go to church next Sunday. Not only that, man, my Bible is on the other side of the room. I'm just going to go to bed. And slowly but surely, you begin to drift you begin to drift away into inward apostasy. Or maybe you come to church, but maybe your mind is so full of what you're going to have for lunch. Maybe you only care about La Casita, where they're going to make some delicious tacos. Or maybe you're thinking about breakfast. Or maybe you're thinking about the arguments you had with your spouse 10 minutes before you walked in the door. And your mind has now drifted. And you continue this pattern. Every Sunday, something new comes up and distracts you from God's Word and from worship. And so you approach Sunday as you would approach any other event, as you would approach dinner. You would come, you would expect your menu to be delivered to you, and you're here to be served, and you're just going to wait and see what happens. 
instead of preparing your mind and preparing your heart for the receiving of God's Word. And so it's so easy to drift from God and lose confidence in Him through neglect. That's why there's such an important thing. Back in the day, the Southern Baptists used to have a little booklet that they would give you. And if you got so many um, check marks, you were at church every Sunday, you did your Bible reading every day of the week, and you did your tithing, and they had all these things that you had to do, it could become very legalistic, couldn't it? But there's something to be said about developing habits in which you are prepared to receive the Word of the Lord. And so it's important that we don't neglect, because that's what they did. Because sin is not a burden only because it's heavy on our conscience, but because it's family rebellion. It's a rebellion against family. Look at at the second part of verse 4. They have abandoned the Lord. They have abandoned Adonai. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. That's a very special name that Isaiah loves to use often. They have abandoned, or they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Have you ever talked to one of your children and they turn their backs on you? That backside is about to get a spanking, right? Because that's disrespect. And we wouldn't tolerate that in our own children. Yet that's what the people of Israel do. They have turned away from the Lord. You know, it's one thing when a stranger does something hurtful, but quite another when someone close, like a friend, betrays us. It's one thing when my parents tell me something and use words to explain something to me. It carries a greater weight than if some stranger says some mean things to me as I pass them on the road. Right? There's a big difference between the weight that this carries. So the same thing is with sin. It's one thing when the nations around Israel rejected God and followed after their own idols, but it's quite another thing when His own people rejected Him. The people of Israel were the keepers of the promises. They were the line of the Messiah, or they are the line of the Messiah. But they began to reject God. Not only did that, but God gave them prophets that would speak the word of the Lord to them, and they rejected Him. It's a family rebellion. The Holy One of Israel is the one that they have rebelled against. That weight should be too much for them to bear. They should feel the weight of their sin. It should be too heavy on their hearts. Sin is a burden that weighs heavy on all of us. Have you ever experienced the burden of sin? I think we all have. I would hope we all have. The sin is heavy. Why do we continue to carry it? Is it because we think we're strong enough to to bear up underneath it? So the good news is that sin is a disease. You ever heard that before? That's good news. Sin is a disease. Isaiah asked them, why are you doing these foolish things? But at the same time, he begins to offer hope. He says, if you address the root cause of your problems, your terrible suffering will end. If you deal with your rebellion, you won't experience the aspects of sin. Because it experiences the wrath of God. Look at verse 5. Why do you want more beatings? You ever tell that to your children? Why do you want more spankings? Why do you want more discipline? Why do you want more of this? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. 
The whole heart is sick. The natural, it's a natural result of an unnatural act. It's a demonstration of a natural law. The wrath of God is a demonstration of a natural law. You ever heard of the theory of gravity? Well, the same thing happens with sin. If I was to take a hammer and I would drop it on my foot, I'm not breaking any natural laws. I'm exposing them. I'm showing them. I am reaping what I sow. I'm fulfilling the natural law. When we sin, when we sow sin, we reap the wrath of God. There is a consequence for our actions. It's natural. So when I say the wrath of God, I'm not just talking about some essential attribute of God, but I am saying that it's a result of going against God's revealed will. And it's so obvious in our lives that we often will sin. I've heard it said that why does good thing ha- good things happen to bad or why does bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened one time, and that was Jesus Christ, and they crucified him. The rest of us are bad people reaping what we sow. The wrath of God in our lives is a normal result of what we are doing. It produces physical and spiritual symptoms. Look at 7 through 8. It's a disease because it produces physical and spiritual symptoms. As we read about, why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling in verse 5? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. You can hear the spiritual elements of this. From the sole of the foot, even the head, no spot is uninjured, wounds, at welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Nobody's putting band-aids on you. Verse 7. Your land is desolate. Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. This imagery is that of after the harvest, they would, so when they were going out to harvest, so many of them did not live right next to their fields, and their fields would be vast enough that they would make a little shelter, they would have a little hut, that they would just take a couple, you know, a couple hours of sleep in between the harvest time. So when you go to harvest, you go out there, you put up a little shack, You work hard, you sleep, and then you go back to working, and it's a continual process. And so these shacks, these cucumber, the the shack, the shelter in the vineyard, the shack in the cucumber field represents what they would do when it was harvest time. And after harvest time, you would just leave that shack alone and let it collapse or do whatever because it's not really your permanent home. And so after time, it would look like it had been just destroyed through time. And that's the imagery that we're getting is the destruction of something over time. A besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. There is a spiritual effect of sin. It's impossible to enjoy the fruits of nature without being in submission to the Lord of that nature. We so often want to enjoy the fruits of nature, the things that God has provided, the beauty around us. But unless we're submission to that, in submission to that God, it's very hard for us to enjoy it. In fact, we probably won't enjoy it. It becomes miserable. There's an effect of that in our conscience, our guilt, and our shame. 
Physical effects such as worry, anger, produce physical... Spiritual effects of worry and anger produce physical manifestations. If you worry a lot, you can develop ulcers. If you get angry a lot, you can have a short fuse and high blood pressure. There's spiritual things that happen to us that cause physical effects. We have to step carefully here, though, because... Not every bad providence in our lives is a result of the punishment of sin or discipline. And so we want to be wise, but many times God removes His hand of protection from His people in order to turn them back to Him. And that's what we see the people of Judah. God is saying, I am removing my hand of protection from you so that other people will come in and cause you to pay attention to what's important. The last thing that we see is sin is a disease because it requires a cure. It requires a cure. There's no curing of this disease without a cure. If I told you that you had a terminal illness, if you went to the doctor and they said, You're, you have this terminal illness, but there is a cure. There's one cure in the whole world. It's in India. You have to fly out there and go get it. And it's 100% proven accurate. Every person who's taken this cure has been saved. That's what you got to do. What would you not do to get there? Would you sell everything you owned? Would you try to get a, enough money together? Would you ask all your friends, hey, can I get a, some money for a plane ticket? I got to get this cure. So if it's a disease that's so deadly, which is what sin is, what would we not do for the cure? We would be without hope if there was no cure. The first thing we notice is that there's a remnant. God does not wipe out the people completely. He masterfully uses Sodom and Gomorrah, the imagery of that, because there were no survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah except for Lot and his three daughters or two daughters. And then Gomorrah, both of those were completely and utterly destroyed. Yet he said that there will be a remnant. He has, he's going to leave a few survivors. Because sin is a disease, there is a cure, and God holds the cure. And that cure is, is Christ. It's a Savior. He's the medicine. So the question is asked, how could the people of God bear up under all this stuff? I mean, like if you look at the language here in verse 5, why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole, heart, the whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot, the bottom of your foot is, has sores on it. Have you ever gotten a, like a blister? It's really hard to walk with a blister on your foot. But imagine your whole body covered in blisters. And that's what's in, in mind here. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, no spot is uninjured. They're uninjured because they've been getting beat up through the wrath that they have, have reaped. They are reaping what they sowed. The question asked is, how could the people of God bear the sufferings of their rebellion? How much longer could they endure without being completely wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah? Repentance has become too difficult for the people of God. There is literally no hope left among them. There is nothing that they can do to defeat this sin. There is no cure amongst themselves. When I hear what the people of God here in Judah are going to experience, I wonder, why is it that Isaiah 53 talks about Jesus being beaten? 
What sickness and pains are these that the servant has to carry? What weakness is Christ going to, to bear? Well, it's because they have, they're occasioned by the rebellion of His people. The, the rebellion that we see here that the people have done, Christ is going to bear the punishment. Jesus Christ is going to be beaten. In fact, Isaiah 53 covers it. We've, we've listened to it. Augie masterfully read it for us. But in a few verses, it says, Yet He Himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded Him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. If you look at who Christ is, and you look at the example of what's going to happen to you in sin, and you see what was transferred from this picture to Christ. What was transferred from this passage here, the results of sin is complete and utter destruction. It's a, it's a body that is covered in sores. And guess who had their body covered in sores? Jesus Christ. Their, his whole body was beaten. His, his face was so disfigured that he was not even recognizable after the Romans got done beating him and whipping him with their whips and pulling the beard, the hairs of his beard out and punching him in the head and, and hitting him with rocks and then covering his head with a, a crown of thorns that covered a blood pouring down from it. All that is what we deserve. That's what Isaiah is saying. He says we deserve to be completely covered from head to toe in abuse because of our sin, because of our rebellion against a holy and perfect God. That's what we deserve. We should be getting this. But ultimately, Christ is the one that got it for you. This is, this is, this is the gospel, friends. This is the essence of the gospel. What we deserved, Christ received. And that you can take the burden, burdensomeness of your disease and sin and take it to the great physician. Exchange the guilt that you are experiencing right now and give it to Christ because He bore it. He bore all of it for His people. Our sin is great, but His mercy is greater. We all are guilty of the consequence of sin. But why do we continue to bear it if we have given it to Christ? Why do you continue to wallow under the weight of sin? If it is true that Christ took the burden on Himself, that He was crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah tells us, He was crushed for our iniquities, do you think you're better than the Messiah? Do you think that you should carry the consequences of your sin? Absolutely not. Why are you allowing yourself to carry this burden? Because you cannot. It's too heavy. We need to forsake sin and then adore God for His patience, long exercise toward us. I think we can take a lot of encouragement from the promise of Christ that even now today, you do not have to carry that burden of guilt and shame and sin. You can turn it over to Christ through the confession of your sins and through repentance. Turn away from it. And every time the accuser brings that burden towards you, you can say, I don't want to carry that rucksack. I'm not carrying that heavy bag of sin. I've been forgiven. I am no longer the one. In fact, why don't you just take that over and place that back over to the cross where it belongs? Because Christ bore it for us. 
our hymn that we're going to be closing with today is, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. I hope that you can all sing that with your hearts today. Father, as your word has given us so much hope, that sin is foolishness, but you are wisdom. That it is a burden, but the yoke of Christ is light. That sin is a disease, but Jesus Christ is to cure. God, as we see the sinfulness of our own lives and we recognize that we should be crushed, that we should face the consequences, that we should face the eternal punishment that belongs to those who reject God. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to live in a world of sorrow and weight and heaviness and a guilty conscience because of Christ. God, I thank you for your Savior, the one that you sent to us to bear this burden. As we took the Lord's Supper and did communion, we, we remember that this is the body broken for us, that Christ's body was broken as the chastisement for, for iniquity, the chastisement for sin, that He shed His blood for the remittance of sin, that God gave Himself in the form of Christ for us. Lord, this is a, a truth that I can't ever get over that I am thrilled every time I think about it. Father, I pray that your word would implant deep in the heart of everyone here, that you would help them to see they don't have to carry the burden of guilt and the, the sin and the shame that they so ha that is so overwhelming. Um, they don't have to be scattered, but they can be brought together by Jesus Christ. Father, help us to put our hope in you. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.